Amen. Thanks, Rick. Um, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, it's my pleasure to be before you this morning. Uh, Rick had a gra- Rick had a graduate graduate yesterday, so it's neat to watch these guys pray for the things that are on their heart. Um, and thank you for thank you for leading us and helping and helping with that. Uh, we are in the middle of a series that's going to be a six week series, I believe. Um, we we figured, you know, at the end of all, all that time we spent in the in the letter to to the Galatians uh, throughout the spring that it might be neat to kind of link some of the things that we saw Paul talking to us about with some of the teachings of Jesus in the, the stories, the parables that he told, uh, unveiling who God is and how God works. Uh, Jesus came, and, and a large part of what he came to do was to correct all of the misunderstandings that humanity had come to, to have about who God is and how he works and why he does the things he, he does. And the main method by which Jesus unveiled those things to those who listened to him and traveled with him on the roads was in parables, in stories, stories that took everyday circumstances and everyday things that would have been a part of people's lives and applied them in a fresh new way to truths and realities about the kingdom of God and about who God the Father in heaven is and how he works and what he sent the son to do. And this morning, uh, we're, we're the second week, uh, we, we decided, you know, this first parable, the parable of the prodigal son, it's really intimidating. I'm, I'm really, I have to say to you, uh, pray for me. I'm very intimidated this morning because this is the parable. I mean, this is the story. This is, this is the one out of all of them that is most central to what we understand to be true of God, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as He's revealing Himself to us through the ministry of Jesus. And so, there's just so much here that even two weeks can't possibly get at it. Uh, but somehow, again, you know, it's this one. We got to we got to do what we can and then move on and believe that God can speak and, and you know, and leave it at that. So we come for the second week in a row. We're going to look at this parable, the parable of the prodigal son uh, in Luke chapter 15. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, you can. Uh, if not, it's printed for you in your worship folder and then it'll be on the screen behind us as well. Last week. We read the entire chapter. This week, we'll just pick up in verse 11 and read the entire story that Jesus told about a man and his two sons. And so read along with me as we as we come to the scriptures this morning. Beginning in verse 11, and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while his father was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and bring a ring and put it on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now. His older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son. Son. You're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. 
he was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, If you look at your outline that I provided for you on the back of that sheet, you'll see uh, two things this morning that I want us to see and just really try to focus in on and meditate on this morning from this parable. The first, and it it might capture your attention, the first is that really this parable is the parable of two lost sons. So I want us to look at both of these boys in their lost condition, two lost sons, and then and then step back from from examining them and talk about the pursuing love of the father for just a minute. So two lost sons and a pursuing father. So let's look at those things together. And let me just ask this question of you as we think about these two lost sons. Have you ever been lost? (laughs) Carter's laughing. Men, okay, men, let me let me talk to the men for a minute. I know it's there's some weird, hor, you know, gene hormone thing going on in men that they cannot admit that they're lost when they're lost. That did not, my dad did not pass that one on to me. I have no problem with that. Um, I, you know, I really don't. If I'm lost, I'm lost. And it's, do I? Do I have a problem with that? No, no. She's shaking her head. No. Okay, good. I'm okay. Just checking. Need to make sure. But men, it's okay. You know, it's okay to be. So, have you ever been lost? Yes. You remember what that feels like? Um, I remember one story. I thought, you know, when I thought, you know, what it, what it means to be lost. I remember when I was 17 years old. Uh, I played baseball here at Winter Haven High School, and my best friend was was I was five nine, 135 pounds. So, and somehow thought I was going to play college baseball. My best friend, uh, his name was Ryan. He was six five and weighed about 200 pounds and hit every other ball over the right field fence on top of the houses across the avenue. Okay. Um, but somehow we decided we were going to go to college together. And so one of the things we decided to do is we had a friend who had graduated the year before and he had gone to Emory University in Atlanta and was playing baseball there. So I, you know, was kind of a nerd and uh, knew that I wanted to go to a really good school. And Emory kind of because they had recruited the guy before us, they kind of were looking at both of us and they said, why don't you come up for a weekend uh, and hang out and see what's going on with the college, you know, with the baseball program and kind of a recruiting trip. Uh, and hey, sounds great. Now, again, parental, you know. Parenting advice. Be careful sending your 17-year-old son with his best friend to Atlanta for the weekend. I'd never been out of, you know, Winter Haven, Florida, born and raised. Here I am, small town. We went to Atlanta, got there the first night, checked in with our friend. He said, you know, I got something to do. Why don't you guys go, you know, figure out? We hit we hit the roads. And I remember it was it was a frightening experience. Somehow we got downtown Atlanta and got turned around and we had, I mean, all of a sudden we looked and thought, you know, we have no idea where we are. It took us five hours to find our way back to Emory. And it was scary. I mean, it was scary because we were driving up and down streets and thinking, okay, maybe we just should turn, you know, leave our stuff in Jamie's room and go back to Winter Haven because we may never find our way back there. Have you ever been lost? You think about what that feels like. And then, you know, I thought, if that doesn't resonate, then let me ask this question. What does it feel like to come home after a long time away? What does it feel like to come back home? See, those those realities, being lost and, and coming back home, those are really, this is really a story about that. This is a story of a homecoming. And really, you could say the story of the Bible, the entire story of the Scripture is the story of a homecoming, that that what the scripture would teach us is, is that we have lost our home. That we were, Marianne Lanehart and I joke because she said it just feels kind of weird when you say it, but then I, I kind of get it. We were made, we were made to be naked people, you know, in a garden, talking to God face to face. That's our home. We were created for that. And we've, what the scripture says is we've lost that. We've, we've been kicked out of our home and the world no longer reflects the deepest desires of our hearts. It no longer suits us. We're not home. In our lives, our lives don't work. We're lost. We're far away from home. And things don't work the way they're supposed to. And part of what Jesus is teaching, now remember, we need to review for just a minute, and it's not here, but we read it last week. What prompted this story is Jesus in his ministry. There are two groups of people that keep popping up in Jesus' ministry. On the one side, there are what, what Luke refers to as the, the sinners and the tax collectors. They're the moral failures, the people who were the outcasts of society because they'd absolutely blown it. And Jonathan talked all about that last week. And so I, we don't want to spend a lot of time going there. But there was this group that just represented the moral outcasts, the moral failures, the people that everybody looked at them and said, those, those are the bad people. Those are the people that got it wrong. And then, but at the same time, it seemed like Jesus couldn't get away from the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Not the moral failures, but the, but the moral upstanding. The guys who really, they knew God. They were the, the, the obedient ones. They were, 
the, the success stories. They were the good people. And so Jesus seems to constantly be surrounded by these two groups of people. And what happens is, is the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders are getting upset because Jesus keeps doing weird things. He keeps passing up invitations to eat with them to instead go into the houses of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and have dinner uh, with, with the bad people. And it, they just can't quite figure him out. Why would he, you know, why would he pass up the opportunity to be with all of the good, upstanding, you know, good people and continue to go and spend time with the, the morally bankrupt, the moral outcast, the last, the lost, the least? And to explain his actions, Jesus tells us uh, three stories. And this is the third one. And this one is about a man who has two sons. The two sons representing the two groups of people that Jesus is talking with as he tells this parable. And so the audience determines the teaching of the parable. And what's really happening here is this parable and the ones before it, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, they're absolutely subversive and scandalous. Jesus is telling this story to correct cultural assumptions about who God loves and who he doesn't, about who's ahead of who, about who's in and who's out, about who's good and who's bad, about who's lost and who's found. And so the teaching, if I could summarize it for you before we really get into the nitty gritty of this, the teaching of Jesus's parable as it comes to us here is that there really are two types of people in the world. And I want to say it this way. We're going to keep coming back to this because these are the these are the categories that we're going to put everything in. There are two types of people in the world. There are those, number one, who believe they're beyond the reach of grace. And then there are those who believe they're beyond the need of grace. See, two types of people represented in these two sons. Number one, people who believe they're beyond the reach of grace. Number two, there are people who believe they're beyond the need of grace. And here's what Jesus is saying. Both are lost. Both miss the truth of Christianity. Those who think they're beyond the reach of grace. Those who think they're beyond the need of grace. So we need to look at these two lost sons and how they represent those things first. Let's look at this first son, who we call the prodigal son. Uh, the prodigal son represents people who feel like they're beyond, uh, b- because of their sin and their moral failure, that it has put them beyond the reach of God's grace. Here's a son who is unsatisfied with the way his life is going. And so he goes to his father and he asks his father, Father, would you please get, go ahead and give me my inheritance early? Now, I've tried this with my dad. It hasn't worked so far. I think there's biblical you know, precedent and teaching here, but nevertheless, he comes to his, comes to his father and says, Father, Dad, uh, I really, I really want to kind of go and, and figure out who I am and, and, you know, go and test, you know, test the waters. Would you please give me my inheritance early and, and let me go? Uh, and, and what and what nearly every scholar who has any understanding of the day and time in which Jesus told this parable understands is they say that what he was really doing, it was an insult that we can possibly fathom. He was saying, Dad, I wish you'd die. I don't want to wait until you die to get your stuff. I wish you would go ahead and give it to me. And what the father should have done, every every Middle Eastern man who had a son like this, the expectation would have been that the father would have beat his son and then disowned him. But instead, this father grants his son's request, liquidates his property, gives the cash to his son and sends him off. The son goes into a foreign, you know, into a distant country, into a far country in verse 13, it says. And there, you know, as if every father who can imagine his son coming and asking the same request, as if any of us are surprised, there he squandered his property in reckless living. It got so bad, he found himself, you know, Jesus is a Jew. He found himself a Jew feeding slop to pigs. It couldn't have been any worse for this kid. And he is representative of a philosophy of life, this son in Jesus' parable of, of self-discovery and self-fulfillment, of religion, of I'm going to do things my way, I'm going to do what I want to do with who I want to do it, when I want to do it, for as long as I want to do it, and nobody can tell me any differently. I want to be out from under all authority, all you know, parental pressure. I want to be my own person. I'm going to find my own way. And what Jesus is saying is, is, your heart wasn't created for that. That way of living leads nowhere except to feeding pigs slop while your stomach grumbles and you long to eat the slop you're feeding the pigs. He's lost. Your religion, 
you know, that this self-discovery, self-fulfillment leads to a lost condition. You end up feeding pigs. But let's think about the second son for just a minute. And you see if the first son represents people who feel like their sin and their moral failure has put them beyond the reach of God's grace. You see, the son can't imagine. He, he, he thinks, I can't go back home because I know what's going what's gonna to happen there. You know, I'm beyond the reach of my father's grace. The older brother represents people who feel that like their obedience and their good life has put them beyond the need of God's grace. Here's a son. He's done the exact opposite. I'm the firstborn of a firstborn. Anybody else out there? Firstborn of a firstborn. It's a tough life. No kidding. Firstborn's a firstborn, you know, driven. I, 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 you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the good son. I'm gonna stay home. I'm gonna obey my father. I'm gonna do all the things he asks me to do. I, I'm not my, you know, that younger brother of mine is gone and squandered the father's property. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay home and I'm gonna do the right thing. And I'm just gonna give myself to moral attainment. And here's a son. He, he is, he's the perfect son. He's, he's only obeyed father's orders. He stayed at home and overseen all of the managing of the family's business. He He's done all the things that, that the firstborn son are supposed to do. And he's representative of people who the, the, the life strategy that people adopt is I'm going to do good things. I'm going to conform, you know, moral conformity, uh, religion. I'm going to give myself to a dutiful, religious, morally upright life. And Jesus is blowing up our categories and he's saying, you see, that that'll get you that'll get you lost, too. Because he's in his father's house. But can't you see from the way it unfolds in the parable? He's so far from his father's heart. He's angry. He's bitter. He hates his life. He hates his father. He hates his brother. I mean, he's cold. He's hard. He's just he's just shut down. And so here is a son. He's lost, too. He's at home, but he's angry and he's resentful. Now, Tim Keller, who has a wonderful book on this parable called The Prodigal God, and I couldn't recommend it highly enough to you. He says, here's what's being revealed. He says, the hearts of the two brothers were the same. Both sons represented their father, resented their father's authority and sought ways to get out from under it. They each wanted to get into a position in which they could tell the father what to do. He goes on, each one, in other words, rebelled, but one did so by being very bad and the other by being extremely good. Keller goes on, do you realize then what Jesus is teaching? Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving and enjoying and and serving him for his own sake. Here's the sentence. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. That's the message that this parable is trying to trying to get at. It's unveiling the heart of humanity. And Tim Keller says what the parable means is you can rebel, you can rebel against God by being and be alienated from him in one of two ways, either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. You see, the common the common thread in the life and in the heart of these two brothers is they did not want their father. They wanted his gifts. They did not love their dad. They loved they loved his money. And what Jesus is opening up for us is he's opening up the reality of the human heart and how and how prone we are to fall in love as sons and daughters of the most high God in heaven, how prone we are to fall in love with his gifts instead of falling in love with him. And it exposes how much of our life, how much of our obedience, how much of the calculated way we live is really an attempt not to get God. We don't obey God to get God. We obey God to get his stuff. And over and over again, what, what the, especially the prophets in the Old Testament, what, what, they had to, what they had to do and what they had to cut against in the people of God was this, was this, this, this gross way, this misunderstanding, this, this misallocation of what it meant to be in a relationship with Yahweh, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because Israel kept turning away from God who kept calling himself I'm your father. I'm your father. I'm your father. I love you. I'm the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. I've I've carried you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. I'm your father who loves you. And yet the people over and over again, they turned away from relating to God as their father. And they started to relate to him the same way that those who worship Baal in Canaan would relate to him. It was Canaanite religion. 
they, they turned it into a business arrangement. You know, God expects, I want, you know, I need crops. I need it to rain so my crops can come so that I can bring them in so I can have food to eat and I can have something to sell and I can get some money. So I need rain. Well, Baal, you know, here's the way it would work in the ancient Near East. Baal brings the rain and Baal tells me I've got to do this and this and this and this. And if I do these things, he'll bring the rain. It'll go well. So you know what? Okay. So I'm going to do all, I'm going to do my part. Now I'm going to step back. Now, now you do your part. I mean, it was this Canaanite religion of here. There are certain things that I've got to do to appease the gods and then the gods will do their part. I do my part. They do their part. He gets what he wants. I get what I want. Everybody's happy. And what's being, what Jesus is, is exposing here is the way that we are constantly turning a love relationship with our father into a religion that looks more like a business relationship. I mean, I think I'm just sad when I read this story about a dad and his two boys. There's no, I mean, do you, do you feel it? There's no, there's no intimacy. There's no joy. There's, it's so formal. It's like a business contract. You know? Dad, I've done everything you asked me to do. Would you please give me what's mine? And what Jesus is saying is, be careful. There's something in your heart that's going to constantly be pushing you away from the kind of relationship the Father in Heaven desires to have with you towards a religion that becomes just a matter of, I've got to check off the marks. I've got to do all the things he asked me to do so that he will give me a good life. I've got to get my kids in church. You know, so that they'll grow up to be, you know, functioning adults. I, you know, I, I better, I better, you know, I better do this, I better do this, I better do this, or God might get mad at me and take away all the things that I love. And Jesus is saying that's not the way it works with the Heavenly Father. He's, and what he's trying to show us here is there's a common denominator. There's a common denominator in the story of both of these boys, and that common denominator is that there's a refusal or even an avoidance of grace, that the root of sin is unbelief in the gospel. Jesus is teaching us what sin really is here. And at the very, very, you know, at the bottom of the barrel, sin is a, is a refusal to believe in the grace of God given to us in Jesus. It's, a, it's unbelief in the gospel. Um, there's a story, and I, again, I'm, this is like, you know, promotion hour, but there's this a book called the Children, Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, I, would, I couldn't, if you have kids, I couldn't recommend it to you highly enough. I would tell you to rush out and go to, to Lighthouse and buy them. However, they don't have any because I bought every single one they had on Friday. Um, but they'll get more in. But uh, the people who wrote this book, I just want you to listen to the way they characterize uh, the, the, the scene in the garden where at the very beginning of the scriptures, there's, the snake is there, Satan comes and he tempts Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve eat the fruit that God has forbidden them to eat, and things go badly from there. But I just want you to listen to the way that this Bible relays this story, okay? Uh, quoting from this, it says, As soon as the snake saw his chance, Adam and Eve in the garden, he slithered up silently to Eve. Does God really love you, the serpent whispered? If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Listen to this. Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. So Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too. Now listen to this. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. Yeah, that's brilliant. And what they're getting at is they're taking you all the way back to the beginning and they're saying all all of sin and death, all of the, the consequences of all the things we live back live with. You can trace it back to this one thing that a lie entered into the universe at the very beginning of time. And the lie was God doesn't love me. And everything that's wrong with our life flows out of living out of that lie. John Owen, who's a great Puritan writer, he said once, "Yea, as your great trouble is about the father's love. So you can no more trouble or burden him than by your unkindness and not believing of it. Now, let me translate that for you. Here's what John Owen's saying. He's saying, although your greatest difficulty in the Christian life is believing that the father loves you, you commit your greatest sin by not believing that he really does love you. You see, the lie is this. The lie at the root of every single one of our lives is, is I am loved because I perform. 
I'm loved because I perform. And so it's very easy to classify these two boys, isn't it? The younger son, he's a bad son. And his bad performance has forfeited his sonship. He's beyond the reach of grace. But the older son, the older brother, he's the good son. He's the favorite, quote unquote. And his performance has merited him blessing. He doesn't need grace. But what you see in both of these boys is there's an avoidance. There's a refusal to come into a relationship with God the Father or with their father that is based upon grace and not their performance. That's what Jesus is getting at. So we've got to go back in there and we've got to take a look at this for just a minute. Okay, I want you to see how this works itself out in both of these boys' lives. Okay, first, let's go to the younger son. Okay, I want you to see how grace is not a part of his psyche. I I love, I love, uh, if you're ever, you know, if you can remember back then or whenever, do you remember when you were a kid? I remember, you know, being at home. We got, we somehow we ended up at home a lot, uh, just my sister and I, and inevitably something would go wrong. The kick, you know, the ball would get kicked into the lamp, the lamp would fall. You know what I'm saying? And it's at 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, mom's not coming home until three. So, you know, you have five hours to figure out, Okay, what's my strategy? Right. What's the story? How's this going to you know, I love I love this guy. He's sitting there in the, you know, feeding pigs. He's in the pig pen and and he comes up with a strategy. You know, he says, I'll rise and I'll go to my father. And here's what I'm going to say. Father, I've sinned, you know, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You know, but but make me a hired servant. And yet. But I want you to see, I mean, it's just great. He's got a strategy and it has nothing to do with grace. And if you're if you're new to Christianity or if you're not a Christian, I want you to be really careful that that something's being exposed. There's a temptation that's being exposed here. The son's strategy is basically this. If I could boil down here, it is. I've failed my father. Um, he really he really has. He's got to be very angry with me. So here's my strategy. I'm going to go home and I'm going to commit myself to doing so much good that eventually I can do enough good that it'll outweigh all the bad I've done. Man, I've messed up. I've done some bad stuff, but if I could just figure out a way to go and to do enough good that the good that I do now would outweigh the bad, then maybe I can get myself back into good good relationship with my father. But what I want you to see is, is at the core of this is really is just what we've said. It's unbelief. He wanted his father's stuff, not his father. Father, I wish you would die. Just give me give me your stuff. He wanted his father's stuff, not his father. So what does he assume to be true of his dad? He assumes that his dad's going to want his stuff and not his son. He believes he's beyond the reach of grace. He can't possibly have anything other than a rude welcome when he gets back home. And yet, what do we find happens? What happens? The father runs out to meet him. I mean, nobody saw the love of the father coming. But the son says, you know, just make me a hired servant. Let me pay back everything I, I owe you. I don't want any, I, you know, great. I, I don't want grace. Just give me the opportunity to make up for everything I've done wrong. Do you feel that in your own heart? The strategy to do enough good that it'll outweigh the bad, and somehow that'll repair the relationship. But you see, it's in it's in the older brother too. I mean, it's so it's so revealing the way he when his father comes out to him. If you look down there um, in verse um, twenty nine, he says when his father comes out, he says he's angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, "Look, these many years I've served you." Uh, that the Greek word there really is slaved you. You know, he, I mean, it, you know, I've been your slave. He's never disobeyed. You see that I've never disobeyed. He has an incredibly high estimation of his obedience to the father. He's outwardly obeyed, but inside he's just full of hate and anger. And he's angry because in his estimation, he's not getting what he deserves and his brother's not getting what he deserves because the, the, the reality of his life is, 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 you know, obedience and reward. You do good things, you get good things in return. You do bad things, you get bad things in return. And the actions of the father have just blown that to smithereens. His brother's not getting what he believes he deserves. And in turn, he's not getting what he believes his performance and his morality and his obedience has merited him. And he's just plain angry. He's angry. But at the core of that, too, is an unbelief. He doubts his father's heart towards him. He says, you've never, I've been here and I've slaved all of these years and I've done all this good stuff and you've not even given me a goat. He comes home, you kill the fatted calf. I've been here for years doing the right thing and you've never given me anything. And he's just completely oblivious to the heart of his father. He doesn't believe in his father's heart for him. And so this morning I want to say to you, if your performance good or bad, is the defining reality of your life and not the Father's love, then here's what's going to happen. 
you're going to fall into one of these two realities. You're either going to live feeling like you're beyond the reach of grace and self-loathing and despair, or you're going to live feeling like you're beyond the need of grace, and that's going to turn into self-righteousness. Or you'll be constantly like me, swinging back and forth between the two. Constantly swinging. And both of those realities are rooted in unbelief. And so what Jesus is doing in teaching us this parable, what he's doing is he's trying to heal our unbelief with this picture of the Heavenly Father. Jesus is unveiling the kingdom of God, and it's a kingdom of grace. It is so radical. The teaching that Jesus is unveiling in this story is so radical. He's daring to say, we are not loved because we perform. We're sinners, and we love, and we're loved. We're sinners, and we love. Both these boys are lost, and both of them are loved by the Father. Both of them have been wrong, and both of them are are the delight of their Father's eyes. That's the truth that Jesus is trying to drive home to our hearts. He's trying to heal us of the way we've always lived, that if I just do the right thing, then I can be loved. He's saying, no, 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 no. Even in your sin, even in your disobedience, even in your rebellion and your gross, your using of the Father to get his stuff, even in your wishing, spitting in the Father's face and wishing him dead, the Father's heart is a heart of love for you. Uh, a lot of you know my, my, my friend and really a father in the faith to me, John Sweet, passed away this a week ago. Um, and I went to his funeral last week, and at his funeral, his son told the most, ama- I mean, just the most amazing story. And I've got to relay it to you because it illustrates this so well, and then we're going to wrap it up and be done. But his son, he has five kids, and the middle son's name's Christopher. And Christopher was, in many ways, you, you need to know the dynamic of the family. This, this man, John, had five kids, and four of them, when he died, were in full-time ministry. Chris is the only one that wasn't. Uh, Chris told the story, you know, that, that he really was, uh, he was the one kid uh, who was the kid, you know, every family has one, who was just constantly testing his parents' patience. He was the kid that just never never seemed to be able to live up to the standards that his brothers and sisters before and behind him put up for him. He was the one that was always getting in trouble, the one that kind of was the black sheep and, and was just the one that just wasn't a Christian, that, you know, was the rebel kind of, you know, out there doing his own thing. And he, he told the story, he said when he was a senior in high school, he was going to Lakeland Christian High School, and um, there was a party uh, for graduation, and he went to the party and, and had a little too much to drink. The school administration found out about it, and they expelled him uh, two days before graduation. And he said, you know, I knew I had to go tell my dad. He said, now, here's what you need to understand. I knew that I, I was the kid. You know, I had tried their patience enough, and he said I, he, it was great. He said, I knew that this, this was it. This was going to be, this was finally the event that was going to push, push them beyond being able to love and forgive me. You know, that this was the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, that this was the one where, where finally they were going to kick me out of the house so they were going to finally say, you know, we've put up with you all these years, um, you know, but this is it. We can't take it anymore. And he said, so I'm wrestling with all this stuff, and I, I have to go find my dad. And I go to the construction site where he was working, and I, I walk up to him and said, Dad, I need to tell you something. He said, Dad, um, you remember that camping trip, that party I went to a couple weekends ago? Yes, yes, son. Well, Dad, there, were, there was alcohol there, and I, and I drank a bunch of it. And he says, Dad looked at him and said, I know, son. He said, Dad, they, they expelled me from school. And he said, my dad looked up at me and he said, well, son, that was stupid. But we're going to get through it. And he said, come to work at 630 tomorrow morning. <laughs> and so his la- what would have been his last day of school, Christopher gets up before dawn, expecting that his father is going to work him to death. And as he's getting dressed, he looks over, and in the desk in his room, there's a note. And in the note, his dad has written him a letter. It's beautiful. I wish I could recount it to you. But basically, he just here's a father who just, who just sat and reflected. He said, you know, son, I've been watching you this year, uh, how you've befriended your friends and how you've cared about them. And I just want you to know I've seen and I'm pleased. And I've been watching, and I saw the way you, you were on the basketball team and how you worked hard and were a great teammate. And I just want you to know I saw... And I was, and I'm pleased. I, I've been paying attention, and I'm, and I, and I'm very, very pleased with you. And he says, "Today's your last day of school." And he said, "There's a fifty-dollar bill." And he said, "Back then, you know, it's a lot of money." He said, "Here's fifty dollars. Go pick up a friend. Today's your day to do whatever you want to do." And Chris said, "For a kid who was rebellious, he said it was two years later where Lucrista, his sister." finally connected the dots for him and said, you know, just that little bit that you, uh, that experience of the Father's love and grace that you got when in that moment in your life that was so defining, uh, that's just a little whisper of the, of the heart that your Heavenly Father has for you. And that was the light switch. I mean, that was what led him to faith. 
is that experience of his father's heart in the midst of his greatest sin, you know, his greatest mistake, that there was grace that was shown in such a radical way. And what Jesus is doing is Jesus is trying to heal our unbelief. All the ways we doubt the father's heart for us, all the ways we live as if he's not a father who loves and delights in us. Jesus is telling us this story to try to heal our hearts against the unbelief that is so deep within us. And in in many ways, that's what his whole ministry was. In our assurance of pardon, he says, you know, he's trying to heal our understanding of the father. He says, how you uh, being evil when your son asks for a piece of bread, you don't give him a scorpion. How much more will the father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You know, he keeps telling stories. You have a father in heaven. Don't don't be anxious about anything. Seek first the kingdom of God, for for you have a father in heaven who loves you and you're more valuable than anything else in the world. He's trying to heal our hearts towards the father. And so this is what is revealed of the father in his parable. Look at the way the father relates to his younger son when he comes to him. And he asks for his inheritance, we read there that the father divided his property. And it's interesting there. I can't find it, but. In verse 12. When, 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 the, when Jesus says that the father divided his property between them, what's interesting is the Greek word there is not the Greek word property. It's the Greek word bios. It means life. It literally means that in order to grant the son his request, the father had to rip his heart in two. That the sin's son, his presumption, his rebellion, ripped his heart in two. And yet he didn't slap his son and, and throw him out of the house. He gave his, into his request. And then you get the picture of a father who watches intently for his return. And then when he comes over the horizon... He runs out to meet him and he humiliates himself in the process because patriarchs in that day didn't run anywhere. He embodies grace. He does not wait for his son's repentance. He showers him with love as unworthy as he is. He he grants him acceptance and he brings him back into the house and he throws the, the greatest party that the village has ever seen. The fatted calf is killed and everybody's invited. Nobody saw his love coming. But not just with that son. Look at the way. He reacts with the older son too. notice that he goes out to him too. Humiliating himself in the process again, the elder son brought as much shame to his father as the younger son did, because he was the one that was supposed to be in the house, greeting the guests as they came. And yet he's outside pouting and the father has to go out to him, too. And if you look there in verse 28, it says he, he the father came out and he entreated him. And that Greek word there is literally the Greek word parakaleo. It's the word that's used for the Holy Spirit. He came alongside. He entered into his world. He incarnated with his son. And then he reassures him these these words that are so beautiful. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you because there's a father in heaven who longs to give gifts to his children. Don't doubt my heart. You see the correction. The correction that Jesus is after is not, you know, there are people who performed well and they're the good people and there are people who perform poorly and they're the bad people. The correction is both of these sons are wrong and both are loved. And so the gospel teaches us, if I could sum it for you as we close, that on our worst days, we're not beyond the reach of grace. But on our best days, we're not beyond the need of grace. And the power of the story is to see where is two things is to see where you've been offensive and wrong. To see where you've acted just like these sons in their arrogance and their presumption. To see your sin and how offensive and wrong you've been. And then to see the father coming after you in love. If you're a prodigal, it's not hard. The tax collectors and sinners listening to the parable would have understood it immediately. But if you're a self-righteous Pharisee, notice how the parable ends. Who's in the house celebrating and who's out of the house pouting? The parable ends with the, with the older son still outside. Jesus' way of inviting the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day and the Pharisees and the religious leaders in this room. It's his way of inviting them out of their religion, out of their hard-heartedness, into a relationship with him based upon his love alone and not their good record and not their good moral performance. And those are the very things that keep a lot of people out of the kingdom of God. Both sons were wrong. Both were loved. Jesus is healing our unbelief in this beautiful picture of a father who loves. Those who are rebellious and indifferent. Those who are dutiful and obedient. The gospel is something different than both. In the gospel, we are sinners. We're, you know, cheer up. You're far worse than you think you are.
and you're far more loved than you can ever imagine. So let's pray that together this morning. Jesus, thank you for this wonderful story and how it heals our hearts of all of our cynicism and unbelief that at the very core of our lives is the lie that entered into humanity so many centuries ago that you really don't love us. And so all of our lives are lived out of a strategy of proving that we're lovable. But, but, but deep down, it haunts us. It goes with us everywhere we go. Does God really love me? Does God really love me? And, and, and until we're healed, until that unbelief and that cynicism and that doubt is healed in us, we cannot uh, give you the obedience that you so desperately desire. We'll be constantly using you to get your stuff, obey, obeying in order to manipulate you. Father, forgive us and come and heal our hearts. Come and do what you promised to do now as we come to your table and draw near to us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Now, as we prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's table, um, it's fitting that we would offer a confession of faith. And as we stand to do this in just a minute, we are saying these are the very things our entire lives hang on. This is the core of what we believe to be true of our life and of the universe as a whole. So would you stand with me? And let's recite the Apostles' Creed together in response to the preaching of the word this morning. So, Christian, I ask you, in an age of unbelief, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There's a question that begs to be asked as you come to that, you know, as you think about that parable, and that is how how is it possible if you if you take the teaching and apply it to the Father in heaven, how is it possible that the Father in heaven could offer such love? Uh, if you take those parables, there, remember there's three of them in Luke 15. There's the story of a lost sheep, and the sheep is lost, and then there's the story of a shepherd who goes and pursues the lost sheep and brings it home, and then there's the story of a lost coin. And in the story of the lost coin, the coin is lost and the woman sweeps the house out and goes in pursuit of the coin and brings it back home. And then Jesus tells this third story and it's the story of a son who's lost and who goes out into a distant country. And yet what is what is absolutely obvious is missing is nobody, nobody goes out to bring him home. And nearly every commentator and every Bible scholar you read says Jesus is a masterful storyteller and he's doing that on purpose. He's begging you to ask the question. Who is it that should have gone after him? And if if you were a Jew in that day and time, the answer would have been obvious. It would have been the older brother. The older brother would have been the one who would have had the responsibility to go into the distant country to pursue his brother, to bring him back home and reconcile him to the father. And so the mystery of the parable is, is that if you're a prodigal, you know, or if you're living at home, but you're far away from the father's heart, there is where we have a true older brother who left heaven for earth to go after us in our sin, to rescue us from our despair and our ruin and to bring us back to the father and to reconcile us to the father. And his name is Jesus Christ. You see, the only way the only way the father could receive the prodigal son back into the family was at the expense of the older brother. Everything the father was telling the truth, everything the father had was the brothers. He divided his inheritance. Two thirds of it went to the older brother because he got a double portion. I'm working on that with my dad, too, and that's not working either. So pray for him. You know, double portion of the inheritance goes to the oldest son. But the other third would have been the young. So when the younger brother took his third, everything else the father had belonged to the older brother. There was only one way. That the father could bring the son back into the family, and that was at the expense of the older brother. It cost the older brother dearly, which is probably why he was so mad. But listen to me, the only way that the father can bring us back into a relationship with himself is at the cost of our older brother, and it cost him his body broken and his blood shed. If you ever, if you want to know the love that the father has for you, it is this meal 
that, that represents that and celebrates that better than anything else God has left for us. Because in this meal, we see the cost with which it costs to bring us back into the family. It cost the father his prized possession, his only son. It cost our elder brother his life. His body was broken and his blood was shed so that we who deserved to die could live because he who deserved only to live and to be, and to be worshipped died. We're sinners and we love because he has come and performed in our place so that no matter how badly or no matter how good we have performed, we can come to the Father and experience grace that is not based upon our performance but solely upon his love for us. It is this meal that represents so powerfully the reality of the love that the Father has for all those who call him Father. So, two things for you to think through in self-examination as we prepare to come to this table. The first is, is your faith in Jesus Christ. This is a meal for those who believe in Jesus. And then secondly, just one other thing that I would say, the scripture is very, very clear that as part of a way of preparing yourself to come to this table and celebrate this meal, that which, which represents the costly love that the Father has for his children, it, Paul's very clear that to... To come and to celebrate by taking the bread and the juice, the reconciliation that is yours with the Father because of Jesus' work, and to at the same time not be reconciled to one another. To have issues where there is a need for reconciliation and love on a horizontal level uh, while you celebrate the love that is yours in Christ Jesus on a vertical level is something that is very, very bad hypocrisy. And so we ask you those two things. Can you, is your faith in Jesus Christ? If not, then come and talk to me and let's, let's make sure... We get that done. But are you at peace? Are you reconciled? Or do you need to do some work? The scripture says, if your brother's offended you or if you've offended him, leave the altar, go do the work of being reconciled to your brother, and then come. We'll celebrate this meal next month. Um, we'll be back here first, you know, first week of, of June. But this meal uh, begs those points of self-examination as you prepare your hearts to come. Now, see then the cost uh, to the Father and to the Son, uh, that you might be welcomed back into the family. Here is the feast. This is the feast that we celebrate together. It's the same as the feast that the Father celebrated with, with the, whole, the whole community, the whole village in the story. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his disciples. He took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. After supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Take, eat, and drink. And as you do, you proclaim my death. He says, take, eat, and drink, and do this in remembrance of me. The way this works is there'll be people at the, the bottom of the aisles here. As you feel led, you come, take the cup, and take the bread. Return to your seats after everyone's been served. We'll partake of them together. Um, so let's pray together and prepare our hearts to come to the table uh, of the Lord. Uh, those of you who are helping me serve, would you come on? Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus Christ, our elder brother, thank you that you have gone to lengths we cannot imagine to bring us back to the Father. For you did not just go from one country to another. You left heaven for earth and came to offer the perfect obedience to the Father's will that is asked of us. And you came to suffer and to die in our place that we might be forgiven of our sins. That we might possess the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That we might be accepted in the Father and loved by Him. These things are too great for us to even consider. Uh, they're, they're so great that our minds have a hard time believing them. There's, a, there's an unbelief that pervades all of our life. And so would you come... And would you use this meal we celebrate together this morning to heal the unbelief that is so near in our hearts? And would you come and finally convince us of your love for us and may it produce a life of beautiful devotion to you and all who are here this morning. Come and do what you promised to do. Be near to us now as we eat this meal together. And may you be glorified in the eating of it, we pray. In Jesus' name.
as you feel led, you come. In the face of such overwhelming evidence, there's only one conclusion you can come to, and that is that the Father truly and indeed loves those uh, who have their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, uh, knowing that then, taking the bread together, this is the body of Christ for you. And taking the cup. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's pray together. One more time. Great God, our Heavenly Father. Forgive us for all of the ways that we constantly try to prove that we are worthy of your love. And may this meal that we celebrate together today finally put our hearts at rest to know that you have gone to such great lengths to provide for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. That he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him and there is no work left to be done. And yet, recipients of such grace, what could you possibly ask of us that we would not willingly give? Uh, So I pray that we would see you in all of your beauty and that the sight would affect, subdue, and heal our hearts of all of our stubbornness and rebellion. That you would come and breathe new life into us. That we might be the true representation of the body of Christ to the city we live in and to the world we're called to. And that it might be to your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen then this benediction belongs to you that no matter where you are, no matter how far from home you've traveled, you can arise and come to Jesus and he will embrace you. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.